So my wife, Jessica, and my daughter, Addie, are at Camp Deeran this weekend. Uh, they had a mother-daughter retreat. So we had a boys' weekend, me and Christian. We played a lot of baseball. Uh, we watched a lot of football. We ate a lot of pizza. And last night when Texas was about to beat Alabama, spoiler alert, I said, you can stay up late if you want to. <laughs> Jessica's not here. And so we did. And then this morning was uh, difficult. So we're here. We made it. We had to dress ourselves. I didn't have anybody at home this weekend to iron my clothes for me, so that's why I'm dressed less like a preacher than the song leader today. But either way, I'm glad to be alive. But sometimes I like to, especially during the welcome, just breathe together. So I want to try for just a moment, if you would join me in inhaling and then exhaling. Let's try to inhale together. You ready? Now hold it. Now breathe out, and as you breathe out, put your hand out there and try to catch your breath. See if you can get a hold of it. You can't. You can't. It's good to breathe. It's good to breathe together, but you're not going to be able to catch your breath when it's in the air. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. In the summer of 2022, uh, I, July, so last July, a little over a year ago, I took a sabbatical. The elders offered me a time of rest. I was really looking forward to this. It actually requires a lot of work to get to a place where you can take a month of rest. But one of the things that I was looking forward to is just being quiet for a month. For 15 years, I, every Sunday or Wednesday, I'm preparing some kind of lesson. I'm up in front of people teaching or leading, preaching in some way. So to be quiet for a month was a big deal. And one of the things that came along with that is the ability to just read God's Word, read the Bible, just to be with God. Now, I do that anyways... But most of the time, I'm thinking about this class i got coming up or the sermon I'm coming up. So as I'm reading the Bible, I'm also reading to prepare for a lesson. So for the first time in 15 years, I'm going to just sit down, read the Bible, and I'm not going to even think about any lessons coming up. And day one of sabbatical, guess where I turn to? I'll give you a hint. It's on the screen. Ecclesiastes. Uh, I opened my Bible app, and I don't remember why, but for some reason I thought, I'm going to start with Ecclesiastes. I started in chapter 1, and I read through it slowly. I read it again. The next day I read chapter 2, and then within the first few days I had read all 12 chapters. I was really drawn to it. I'm not real sure why. I have a few reasons why I think it could be possible. One reason is I think that Ecclesiastes gives me permission to fill my frustration. If you've ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes, it may sound pessimistic or realistic, but it, for me as a minister, it's like I'm kind of frustrated with some things in life, and reading through this book, so is this writer. So let's be frustrated together. I think I was drawn to it because it reads like nothing else in the Bible. You read through Ecclesiastes, and you may think, huh. This doesn't sound like the Bible very much. In fact, I'll confess that half the time I was reading, I didn't fully understand what I was reading, but I could tell something was stirring within me. So when I set out to read Ecclesiastes, I wasn't initially planning on preaching a sermon series through it. However, something stirred within me, and by the time my sabbatical was over, I thought, at some point on down the line, I'm going to preach through this book, and now is the time. So I'm excited to be able to say, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you can't find it, you can look in the table of contents. I know it's probably not a book that you turn to real often. It's been very formative on my own spiritual journey, 
In fact, that first week, there are two little Proverbs stitched in. It's, Ecclesiastes is not like the book of Proverbs, but it, in some ways it will sound similar to Proverbs. And there's a, a couple little proverbial proverb sayings as you get along in the book, and in chapter 7 especially. Two of those were so impactful on me that my daughter hand-wrote them on a card, and they're hanging on my mirror, my bathroom mirror. Two verses from Ecclesiastes 7, which I'll share with you in a few weeks. But every day I want to see that in the mirror as a daily reminder of who I'm called to be in Christ as I read something from the Old Testament. My prayer as we enter into this study is that maybe God will transform you, use some of the words, use some of the wisdom from what we read to, to send you in deeper into your faith journey with Christ, maybe beginning your faith journey with Christ. I don't know. I Honestly, the Word of God is living and active, and I can't ever tell how God is going to work. I just trust that God will work through this. So let's read verses 1 and 2 again. I know Luke read verses 1 and 2, I think from... Uh, ESV or NRSV, something like that. I'm going to read from NIV and then I'll switch back to the NRSV. So this is from the NIV, verse 1 and 2. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Here we go. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Stop there. Isn't that lovely? Man, I love starting a sermon that way, that's kind of fun, and I guess maybe that shows you where I was at when I started my sabbatical last summer. I read that, and I was like, yes, there, he's on to something. The book of Ecclesiastes is strange, and you see it right away. It seems to be intentionally provocative. As I entered into a deeper research project this summer on Ecclesiastes, the one thing that I, the one question I kept seeing over and over is, how did this book make it into the Bible? Because it doesn't sound like anything else in the Bible. And the more I study that, the more I realize there's this whole process of what books were canonized and what books were not. There were councils that met to make these decisions. And by the end of the first century, there was a council that met. And they were divided about whether or not Ecclesiastes is a part of the inspired Word of God. And there was a debate about whether or not it even should be included in the Bible. Eventually, they all agreed, or at least they decided, or the majority won, that yes, this comes from God, this is the inspired Word of God, it goes in the Bible. But it's almost like it just kind of slipped in. Because when you read it, you're like, this doesn't sound like what we would read in the Bible, but it's in the Bible, and the book of Ecclesiastes became an important part of the Jewish calendar each year. If you looked at the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, there's a section split up called the Five Scrolls, or you see up here on the screen, the Megillah. These five books are a part of the Megillah, the five scrolls, Ruth, Song of Songs, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. There was five major festivals each year on the Jewish calendar, and they would take one of these books, like starting with Ruth, and then the next festival they would read Song of Songs, the next festival Lamentations, and then when you get to the Feast of Booths, at some point somebody would stand up and read aloud to all the people gathered together, they would read together the book of Ecclesiastes. So not only did it make it into the Bible, but it became an important part of the Jewish calendar each year. Now the way that we read Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to come back to this a lot every week, and I'm going to go ahead and just drop it in there right now. We read this on the other side of the death and resurrection of Christ. 
So we read it a little different. We get to read this from a Christian perspective through the lens of Jesus. However, that does not mean that we dismiss the wisdom that we find in Ecclesiastes. So we're going to hold that wisdom that we're reading and some of the tension, some of the contradictions even within the book, and we're going to sit with it, but we're also still going to view it through the lens of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to verse 1. Now I'm switching over to the New Revised Standard Version, and it says, The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we're introduced to the words of the teacher. Does anybody have a translation that says the words of the preacher? Anybody? Okay, I see a few around there. So what is it? Is it teacher? Is it preacher? Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, the great reformer, and sometime in the 1500s, when he came out with his translation of the Bible, he translated it as preacher. And if he is a preacher, is this what a lifetime of preaching does to you? Because it didn't take me long, if, if that's what it does. But I don't know, maybe preacher's not the best translation. The Hebrew word, I'm going to teach you two Hebrew words from verse 1 and verse 2. The first Hebrew word is transliterated on the screen, it's koheleth. Okay, some, it depends on what you're reading, it may just end with the T. A lot of them end it with the TH, kind of pronounced like that, Koheleth. That's the word that's used, the words of Koheleth. And it's hard to translate into English. It could be teacher, it could be preacher, probably more so an assembler or a gatherer. But we're not sure what he is assembling or what he is gathering, if he's like leading worship or if he is a gatherer of wisdom saying. But this phrase, Koheleth, is where we get the title of the book, Ecclesiastes. You ever read through your Bibles and think, I wonder why we call it Ecclesiastes. What does that mean? Well, Ecclesiastes, it comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Now, if you're familiar with the Greek at all, ekklesia is the Greek word for what? Anybody know? Church. I don't know what you said, but it's church. So... It's a gathering, an assembly of people, a group of citizens, and this is similar to what the word Ecclesiastes means, an assembler, a gathering of people together. That's what the title of the book is, and Koheleth, the teacher, as we're introduced to here in verse 1, is going to be the main voice that we're going to read from in Ecclesiastes, but there's actually two voices in Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you would have caught that, but in verse 1 and 2, we're introduced to the narrator. There's a narrator who's introducing us to Koheleth, to the teacher, and then the narrator's going to pass the pen or pass the mic on to uh, Koheleth, and then the narrator will come back towards the end of chapter 12. Koheleth, the teacher, is the main voice, but who is Koheleth? Well, it sounds like Solomon. The son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And then we'll get to verse 12 next week and beyond. And everything sounds like Solomon. So you would think, okay, Solomon wrote this, but Solomon's name is never actually mentioned. Just kind of alluded to. And then you start studying Ecclesiastes, and every smart person, scholar out there will tell you Solomon did not write Ecclesiastes, which is a little confusing because it sounds like Solomon wrote it, his name is not used, and then everybody says, no, Solomon did not write it. Well, there's reasons for that. They say that it's just somebody using Solomon's persona, Solomon's personality written under the, 
the shadow of Solomon to make you think about Solomon, but then you get beyond chapter 2 and it does not sound like anything a king would have written. And then the proposed date of when Ecclesiastes was written was way after Solomon's time. So there's arguments back and forth. I'm not trying to disrupt everything that you know about the Bible by telling you that. I'm just telling you that's what you would find if you started studying it. And I'm going to talk more about that next week. But we're going to move on to verse 2 for right now. So Luke read earlier something that sounds very different from the NIV, which is what I'm going to read right now. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is Vanity. This is a one-sentence summary from the narrator of Kohelis' work. Everything is vanity. Now, we've already read from two different English translations that sound very different from each other. So here's the second Greek word that I want to teach you. The first one was Koheleth, which is the teacher. The second one is this word, Havel. Now, if you're looking at it transliterated, it may be H-E-B-E-L or H-E-V-E-L. It's pronounced Havel, so that's what I transliterated for you up on the screen. That's the word that's used, Havel, Havel, Havel of Havels, or I'm saying it kind of with a mixture of English and East Texas, but you get the idea. That, if you were reading it in Hebrew, you would see that word repeated 37 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But which one is it? Is it Vanity. Okay, I read to you from the word, from NRSV, when you think of vanity, what do you think of? Somebody that's vain, we look in a a vanity mirror, we're proud of ourselves, we're self-obsessed, but that's not what the original word meant in English. This is from the 17th century, which the word vanity then meant lack of value. But it gets a little confusing because of the way that we view vanity today. So vanity is probably not the best translation because of that. And then the NIV translates it meaningless, which just sounds really pessimistic. When it's meaningless, meaningless, everything is utterly meaningless. It sounds like somebody who's ready to give up on life. But then you read other English translations and it's futility, it's pointless. Futility, futility, pointless, pointless, absurdity, absurdity, emptiness, emptiness. It just depends on which English translation you're reading. So which one is it? Because these words kind of change the way that we hear it. Well, the truth is, there is no English word that works perfect every time. In a way, the English translation is limited. So I'm going to explain to you briefly, quickly, using three slides of a background of what this word hevel really means, and then that'll shed more light on the key word of this book. So one way of defining this word havel is the word vapor. Vapor or mist or fog. So James, the brother of Jesus, when he writes his letter in the New Testament, he has this well-known verse that I quote at almost every funeral, James chapter 4 and verse 14. He asks the question, what is your life? You know the rest of that? You are a a mist or a fog or you are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now that's a powerful statement from James, but the Greek word that James is using in the New Testament echoes the word that's used in Ecclesiastes. Hevel, hevel, vapor. We're here for just a very short time. Life is a vapor. We're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Another way of explaining this Hebrew word that's used in Ecclesiastes is mere breath. 
So we breathed in just a moment ago. We breathed out. Did anybody catch their breath? Maybe you recognize that your breath stinks or you have coffee breath, but you weren't able to actually grab it in your hand. Mere breath, one way of describing this is the waste product of breathing. When you breathe out, uh, I'm so ready for the cold weather. I know Darren prayed this morning and thanked God for that break and the heat, and I am thankful for that as well. The weather is slowly starting to change from 100 degrees to 90 degrees, and we call that a cold front, but I embrace it. I like it, and I can't wait for it to be cold outside. So one of the things I like to do at night before bedtime when it's really cold is to just breathe and see my breath. Anybody else like to do that? Now, same thing from what we just did. You can't reach out and grab it. It's elusive. It's there for just a moment. You can see it, and then it's gone. It's vanished, never to be seen again. That's getting at what Koheleth means by Hevel. That's, it's vapor. It's just mere breath that you see on a cold winter night, and then it's gone. Or as one writer said, it's kind of like soap bubbles. Uh, he used the example of a bubble bath. I haven't taken a bubble bath in over 35 years, but I know the idea of it, or I see my kids play with bubbles outside. Kids love bubbles. They love to chase them. But what do we know about bubbles? They're fun, they look cool, and then when you grab them, what happens? They pop. Or if you don't grab them, they float off in the wind, and then they still, what? Pop, right? That's kind of like what this Hebrew word is. It's like soap bubbles. It's there, it catches your attention for just a moment, and then boom, it's gone. Never to be recovered again, okay? That is what the Hebrew word is that we see over and over, 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, Havel. Meaningless is probably not the best translation. Vanity nowadays is probably not the best translation. But vapor, mere breath... Soap bubbles, you could think of it like that. It's a metaphor for human existence. We're here for just a moment, but everything that we chase after, everything that we care so much about, is beyond our grasp, it's elusive, and then it's gone. Move on to verse 3. Now Koheleth, the teacher, is going to pick up the microphone or pick up the pen, and he's going to take over from here. The narrator is going to take a step back. And we start with a question. This is the question that prompts his search. Is what do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? Uh, another key word, and I won't get into all the Hebrew on this, is the word toil. It's used 35 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you read through it this week, you're going to see, you're going to see that word hevel, and you're going to see toil over and over. It's just kind of referring to the routine struggle of humanity. You might read it like toil as in your job or all the work that you have to do around the house or the work that you have to do in the community or just anything in life that you have to struggle and work towards. That's what toil is. What do people gain from their toil under the sun? This phrase is used almost 30 times throughout Ecclesiastes and basically what Koheleth is referring to is the observable, observable world around us. What we can see while we're here on this earth. Another way of putting this question from verse 3 is, what's the point? Have you ever asked that question before? You don't have to raise your hand, but just think to yourself. Have you ever asked the question, what's the point? What's the point of life? What's the point of what I'm doing at this point in my life? That's a, a kind of a, a paraphrased way of rephrasing this question. What 
is the point of all of the struggle that we go through in life. I know of a preacher who a few years ago was getting worn out from the weekly grind of researching, writing sermons, reviewing sermons, preaching the sermon. Sunday ends, you start the next one, and then you start the next one. He said he was just worn out with it, and the reason that he was worn out with it was because he started to feel like, after decades of preaching, it had no lasting effect. He's like, there's no long-term effect. I'm not really seeing change in our church or in our people. And because of this frustration, he resigned from his job. But he gave his church a one-year notice. He said, I'm going to preach for one more year, so that gives you a year to find my replacement, find a new preacher, and I'll preach for one more year, and then I'm out. Well, during that final year, he decided that he would preach through Ecclesiastes. He had never done that before, and he was like, at least I'll try something new in my last year. But ironically, preaching through Ecclesiastes, God used that to, to reveal to him that he's actually not done preaching. So he wound up resigning from that church and taking a preaching job somewhere else. And it was all inspired by the book of Ecclesiastes out of all the books in the Bible. He said there's a few reasons why. One is because as he preached through this, he started to hear from people in his congregation that they too can feel that way at their jobs. It's not just preachers who feel that way. A lot of you may go to work and you go to work and you go to work over and over and some days you may feel that frustration. Oh, this is meaningless. That's why you like the NIV translation. Am I making any lasting impact? Now, maybe not everybody feels that way. Maybe you have extra happy genes and you're just happy wherever you go. But I think most normal people, especially when it's really hot outside, we can feel that way. So this preacher was saying, yeah, other people feel that way too. I could go find a different job, and in a few years, I'll probably feel the same way. And then he started to think about that lasting impact that he was questioning. And he said, you know, maybe God revealed it to him through the Spirit somehow, but he started to realize, like, planting these gospel seeds week after week, it's out of his hands at that point. The tree may be growing slowly, but it's not up to him to make it grow. God will make it grow. He plants the seed, but then he said, I may never see the impact in my own lifetime, but it doesn't mean there's not an impact. But he had to go through this whole frustration cycle to get back to the point to say, all right, God has called me to preach. We all at some point may ask some variation of this question. What is the point? It may be different seasons of life, it may be a time where you're particularly frustrated. I think Ecclesiastes gives you that permission to just say, what's the point? And let's really wrestle with that and think about it. In verses 4 through 8, I'll pick up the pace in these verses here. Without reading them, I'll just skim over them quickly. He talks about kind of the monotony of creation, the repetitive cycle of creation. In verse 4, generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. Verse 5, the sun rises and it sets. And it does it over and over and over again, never stopping, and it does it quickly. In verse 6, the wind blows to the north and the south, and then round and round it goes, and it returns, and then it blows again. In verse 7, streams flow to the sea, as you can see in this picture. But guess what? The sea is never full. It constantly has water coming into it, and never seems to overflow. In verse 8, everything is wearisome. The human eye seems to never be satisfied, nor hearing is ever satisfied. Koheleth is looking at 
the predictability of creation, the way God has created the world, almost in a negative way. Like he's annoyed by it. Like we're on this hamster wheel and we just keep turning. The world keeps turning. The sun keeps rising and it's a new day. Now, you keep reading through Ecclesiastes and even though each day seems a little bit predictable, he's still going to point out over and over that the future is unknown. Time and chance happens to us all. And you're going to see in almost every chapter, oh, by the way, we're all going to die. The wise and the fool, we're all going to suffer the same fate in the end. So even though we can predict that the sun is going to set, the sun is going to rise, the wind is going to blow, there is something a little chaotic and unpredictable about life as well. I'm going to key in on verse 5 and then we'll move on from there. It says, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. I took this picture in my backyard. Can you tell how great of a picture it is? Uh, that's one silver lining in the summer when I'm burning alive every day is when the sun sets, it starts to cool down, and sometimes it can look beautiful. So it looked beautiful that day. I took the picture, and I was thinking about Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I was thinking about this verse. The sun rises, the sun sets, and it seems to be constantly speeding by. Have you ever heard the phrase, the days are long but the years are short? Anybody ever heard that before? Maybe you feel that way, especially if you're raising young kids, that you're at that stage where you're exhausted, maybe frustrated, and you can't wait for what? To get them to bed, right? So that you can have a few hours of free time, you can watch your TV shows, eat your snacks, and then what do you do? You go to bed. And then you wake up, and then what do you do? You repeat the same cycle, and then over and over, and then all of a sudden they're teenagers, or they're going to college, and it just, boom, just like that. Every night I pray with my kids. And at some point we pray and we thank God for the day. And we kind of almost like go, go through the day with God. And then we ask God's blessing on our night of sleep. And then the next day that's ahead, maybe some of the things that are coming up. And then guess what? Just like that. I'm in their room, we're praying the prayer again, and then again, and then again. It does seem like the sun rises and sets, and then it hurries back. Does anybody else feel that way? I mean, we're on this cycle of life, but it's going by so quickly. You can view that as a positive thing, you can view that as a negative thing. Jesus, as we view this through the lens of Christ, He took this, and He said, actually, there's a reason to love your enemies. Because in Matthew 5, 45, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Our Heavenly Father causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Our Father lavishes love on all people. The sun and the rain come on those who are good and those who are bad. So love your enemies just like your Heavenly Father does. There's a, a Jesus spin on it. And we'll skip down to verse 9 and 10 says, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. So it's kind of like the death of newness. Like nothing new is going to happen. It's existed in some variation in the past somehow, some way. Now you may think, when this was written thousands of years ago compared to now, isn't there a few things that are new? I mean, we can get in a plane and fly in the air. They couldn't do that back then. That's new. We have medical advancements. That's new. We have iPhones and GPS. That's new. There's a lot of new things 
But the truth is, the way that human beings behave and react to each other and some of the same problems, some of that's not new. I'm telling you, some of the wisdom here may sound pessimistic and we may view it through the lens of Jesus, but some of this, there's a truth to it. Are we really growing up and maturing as the generations go by? Are we just repeating the same patterns over and over? Now, view it through Jesus' lens, and yes, there is something new, like what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All right, on the other side of the resurrection, we can view this and say there is something new. In verse 11, this is where we'll wrap it up today. Stick with me for just a minute. He said, The people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. It's like humanity is plagued with an incurable amnesia. Generations come and go, and then it's like they're wiped clean. How many of you knew your grandparents? I'll raise my hand to that. How many of you knew your great-grandparents? I'll raise my hand to that. My great-grandmother lived to be past the age of 100, and I spoke at her funeral just a few years ago. How many of you know your great-great-grandparents? My hand goes down. How many of you know your great-great-great-grandparents? How many of you have got online and you think you know everything about all generations in your family because you researched it? Carl, okay, just one person. So the truth is we don't really know our great-great-grandparents. Generations are forgotten. Look at this picture that's on the screen. My dad's cousin or second cousin tagged me and my family in this picture a few years ago on Facebook, and apparently these are our distant relatives from long ago. You know what I think of when I see this picture? For one, I'm like, they look weird. I guess they're not used to taking pictures, and I don't know these people. I'm related to them somehow. I come from them, these farmer-looking people. I don't know their names. I don't know where they lived. I don't know where that picture was taken. I don't know a thing about them. Generations come and generations go and they're forgotten and then people will forget us in the future. How does that sound for a word of encouragement on a Sunday morning? The first time I read this verse last summer, my first thought was that I broke my body playing for the Greenville Lions, playing football. Literally, I have so many back problems for that. I gave it my all and who remembers it? My parents, maybe. I think they're even forgetting and mixing me up with my brothers. I remember it, but the VHS tapes are starting to get melted and nobody can see it anymore. Maybe a few of my classmates. And so I think, what was the point? We did all of that, and it's almost like we're just wiped off the face of the earth like it never happened. Here we are 20 years later. Nobody remembers. Now, was it all meaningless? I don't know. We enjoyed the ride. We made the memories. We, we were present in the moment. We end on this first section in Ecclesiastes, and this is life under the sun. This is some of the frustration that we may experience. The routines of life, the sun rises, the sun sets, the streams flow into the sea, the sea is never full, but yet at the same time there's an unpredictability, but at the same time there's nothing new, and at the same time nobody's going to remember you, and nobody remembers the generations that's come before us. That's life under the sun, and at the risk of sounding a little cheesy, we live life under the sun. You know what I mean by that? The S-O-N, the sun. We live life under the sun of God. So things are a little different. 
We do get to view this kind of wisdom through a different lens. This word, havel, this is the key word. It can mean mere breath or vapor or just like a soap bubble. That doesn't have to be negative. That doesn't have to be pessimistic. That can just be a humbling reminder. That's the way I've always viewed that passage from James 4.14. Sometimes we just need to be reminded how short life really is. And as followers of Jesus, it's not all just about me. It is not all just about you. Our lives are very temporary on this earth, and we're actually a part of a much bigger kingdom story. And even though our names may not be remembered 100 years from now, the impact that we are making on the people around us and the generations that follow us, it actually does have a lasting impact. So what we do, how we live, and how faithful we are will have an impact from generation to generation. So we need to remember that and be humbled by that. And this word meaningless that's used in the NIV, there are some things in life that are meaningless. In fact, a lot of the things that we've spent our time on that we care so much about, in the end, they're going to be meaningless. But if you put your faith in Jesus and you align your lives with Christ, that is where you find meaning. If you need to find meaning today, if you want to know Christ, you can talk to me, you can talk to one of our elders, you can set up a time to talk later. We call this our invitation song. Come respond if you need to. I don't invite you to stand and we'll continue to sing. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name.